Um, hey guys, well, <clears throat> I haven't preached for a month, so I just thought I'd ease back in by tackling something light like politics in the election. How does that sound? <clears throat> so why don't you just turn to your neighbor, tell them your party affiliation, and... No, I'm just kidding. All right. <clears throat> All right. Hey, why don't we pray? How's that? Is that a good start? Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we love you. And um, if anyone should be able to model to the world civility, um, agreeing to disagree, it's the church. And so, Lord, we pray for that today. Thank you that the tent of the church is wide enough for left and right and green and everything in between. And we ask that that would, just the unity that we have under the headship, the lordship, the kingship of Jesus Christ be so evident today. And, Lord, we also do recognize it's a desperate hour for our country. And so we pray you'd so move in our church, so quicken her, that we would do all that's in your heart to do. We wouldn't miss opportunities in this day to love you, to serve you. Um, and to be all the salt and light that you call us to be. We pray, move, move in us. And Lord, we also just covenant together uh, that we are going to fight the enemy and not one another in Jesus' name. So we just resist the devil. And uh, we pray um, that the enemy would not be able to pick us off or have us so um, bound or, or um, just upset that we're not able to uh, love one another. Thank you that every man and woman in this house is created in the image of God. And, um, and so we're just asking, Lord, uh, be king here in our midst, Lord. And um, we, we resist the enemy and instead pray. Unity among the body, even in our diversity, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Everyone good with that one? Praise the Lord. As a college student and as a young church planter, politics was the last thing on my mind. Uh, you know, my de facto theology was, I'm going to do the Jesus thing and I'll let everyone else deal with the politics thing. <clears throat> but then two things happened to me in, in kind of recent history. The first thing is, I, after, um, after doing my grad school program, my, my edu- education degree is my grad degree. And um, after having a wonderful time in grad school where I got to dialogue and talk and have conversation you know, in classes where we looked at multiple sides of every issue, I showed up as a public school teacher And um, to my own surprise, the conversation was rather one-sided there. And it was a surprise to me because the high school that I taught at, a wonderful high school west of Boston, was chock full of PhDs, EDDs. We had a disproportionate number of doctorates on our staff because of our location to Boston. And just because the college market isn't always great for professors. So I thought, great, we'll have a lot of, like, dialogue back and forth. But I'll never forget the day, actually it's a very humbling day, being in the uh, teacher's lounge having lunch. And it was the day, probably right after the 2004 elections. And it's one of the few days that I'm sitting at the same table as my principal, this wonderful British woman. And, uh, you know, someone, you know, Hugh Bakker, who did you vote for? I thought, oh gosh, I just want to have this conversation right now in front of this lunch table with my principal, you know, my supervisor here. Soon I uttered the four-letter word of the person that I had voted for. And, um, I mean, you would have thought I had gotten up on the table and told everyone that unless uh, they voted for the same one, they're going to hell. I mean, I had every bumper sticker come back at me. Hate's not a family value. All this, you know, come back at me. And I just thought, oh, gosh, right? I just, I don't want to have this conversation right now. I just want to have my lunch. And then, of course, (laughs) at the end of the conversation, the principal, again, a wonderful British woman, under whom I'm so glad I served for four of my five teaching years, she threw down the gauntlet and said, I don't see what the big deal is. Like, I don't, I don't see, you know, what business we have legislating this, that, or the other, you know? Just let that sit there, right? 
kind of articulating the philosophy of the day, which is, you know, why, you know, the, the other bumper sticker, like, get your laws off my bedroom type of thing. And I just thought, ah, you know, I just, let me go back and teach. You know, I just was like, I just, I'm very uncomfortable here. So that was the first thing that happened. The second thing that happened is, Kelsey and I started having kids. And um, that kind of, again, this de facto theology of like, hey, I'm going to do the Great Commission, right? We're here. You know, the very thing that John preached on last week, we are going to do church planting. I'm going to preach the gospel. I'm going to make disciples. I'll let other people deal with the politics stuff. Well, suddenly that gets challenged. When our son, who turns three this week, I just think in 12 short years from now-ish, he could start earning a paycheck, and the government will start taking taxes out. And what is the hope that, you know, my son will have as a 15-year-old working and living in this country? You know, right now we're passing on to him a $16 trillion debt. Um, right now we're passing along um, a military that seems engaged in nation-building, to me, a little bit on the side of hubris. You know, I don't know exactly all that we're doing with our military, not always comfortable with it. So I guess I'm just saying that politics has also come to me as a parent. I'm thinking... Yes, I'm for the kingdom, but also I've got, I've got things that I can do. And what am I passing along to, to, um, to my children? So it could be said that I am uh, perhaps following an age-old trajectory. And it's one that Winston Churchill articulated really well. Winston Churchill, who I just think is the coolest guy on the earth, aside from Jesus and a few other people. But he said this. He said, look, if you're young and not liberal, then you have no heart. He said, if you're old and not conservative, you have no brain. And I was like, ooh. So maybe, you know, this is, I'm, 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 a, I'm a month shy from 40, so maybe I'm just following that trajectory. But my point is this, is like it or not, politics is coming to you. You know, we don't have an option anymore to opt out. And it's kind of irresponsible for us as believers to just take the position I had, which is let's just not engage. Now, Perhaps you're sitting there thinking, oh no, here comes in some sort of alarmist message from Neil, and he's going to use that alarm to manipulate me emotionally. That's the last thing I want to do, um, although I do have alarm. And I wonder, should we not be alarmed? You know, with the debt I mentioned of $16 trillion, should we not be alarmed when 15% of Americans, you know, this is the wealthiest country on earth, but are, um, they're, they're not able to put, sorry, they're struggling to put food on the table because they're below our, our poverty limit. Should we not be alarmed when in our country the loss of religious liberty is happening at such an alarming rate? It's awful. Like I, I, you really could not make some of this stuff up where like a federal judge um, threatened a school valedictorian with incarceration if she used the name Jesus in her uh, valedictory speech, you know. Um, or even in our own city, you know, I, I wrote back to the mayor, uh, Mayor Menino, and he, with the other mayors from the city, just said, hey, I'm going to block Chick-fil-A from coming because I don't agree with the CEO's personal views on same-sex marriage. And I wrote a letter to the mayor just saying, you know, that would make sense in communist China when we use our political power to stop someone because we don't like their views. But this is the United States of America. And how can you do that? You know, you're just putting yourself in a position, a long line of Boston politicians who use their power to, to do their will and, and at the risk and the loss of religious liberty. You know, this is the United States of America. Um, so anyways, this, this is what's happening. Um, and should we not be alarmed with just the total failure of this institution, the church, the total failure of schools, of civic organizations and others to form character in people, right? I mean, don't we see it? I mean, just when I, I, I don't know, I just, um, 
I get really sad when I see the way that kind of millennial and below are our lack of character. To wit, this interview um, with everyone knows who Cameron Diaz is, the actress. Well, she and I have one thing in common, and probably only one, and that is that we were both born in 1972. Now, so, but my point is that she's on the older edge of things. Like I expect of some of what I'm about to share that she says, I would expect it for someone who's 25, but she's 40, and she says this. This is an interview from a magazine from the UK called Stylist. She said this. She said, um, I think the big misconception in our society is that we're supposed to meet the one when we're 18, and we're supposed to get married to them and love them for the rest of our lives. That's BS. And she said the word BS. She said, who would want to be with the same person for 80 years? She added, why not break it up a bit? I think people get freaked out about getting married and spending 20 or 30 years sleeping with the same person. So what does she say? She says, you know what? You should have someone for five years, another person for another five. Life is long and lucky. And yes, love might just last forever. But you don't always live with the person you love forever. You can have that love the rest of your life, but you might love someone else along the way. And there's nothing wrong with that. Indeed, there is nothing wrong with that if that's what you're fed. And that, I mean, gosh, Kelsey and I just, I'm really excited. We have a TV and um, we have a um, digital uh, antenna. So now we get the network stations. And I, just like flipping through the stations the other night, I just thought, oh my gosh, this is what's now on network. You know, I've been kind of five to 10 years out of the TV world regularly. And I was like, this, I'm concerned. <laughs> so is that an understatement? Are you concerned? You know, um, so that's what's coming out. So when people have, if that's what people are reading and that's what they're seeing all the time, of course that makes total sense that that's what we should do, you know? So I don't mean to be alarmist to manipulate you, but I am alarmed. And I feel like our country really has gone past a tipping point. It's not just, oh no, we got to make sure we don't go over the edge. I think we're, we've gone over the edge. And so my heart today is the church can be a part of uh, that turnaround. We need to turn around this decline. And in order to do so, I want to bust a myth. There's one myth that I want to look at, and I want to bust it with the word of God, so that regardless of where you are on the political spectrum, we say, hey, Lord, my job is to be part of the solution. Amen? Amen. Okay. And I will say this. Um, I'm totally aware of the fact that um, what can happen in this sort of message is we all have the image that we like to use around the leadership team is fists go up, Right? Like, as soon as I say certain words, even the examples I've just shared at the school that I taught at, some of you, your fists have gone up and you're ready to fight with me. And I would just ask, can we all put our fists down? And can we all say, hey, God, what are you saying to us as a people? And as I prayed in my prayer, this is a place the church should be the ones that are able to model agreement to disagree on those specifics. But let's agree to say, God, what are you saying to us together? Amen? So I want to help put your fists down. And as you always know, I'm approachable, and so I love pushback, and those are some of the best conversations, so I'm, I'm open to it. I'm trying to do my duty, though, to say, my duty as pastor, to say, hey, I need to present the people with, with what's going on here and with God's word. So, amen. So the myth that we're trying to bust is simply that religion and politics don't mix, okay? We have this thing, and both the church and the state propagate this myth that the church and the state are not to mix, now, the good news is, and for those of you who are following along on your combustible orange sheets, the good news is, first blank, Jesus is party neutral. Okay? Jesus is party neutral. All right? 
He's not a Democrat. He's not a Republican, a Libertarian, Independent. He's not unenrolled. He is so other, it's crazy. And there's this wonderful little verse in Joshua that I love to this point. And it's this. Now, remember the context of Joshua. Joshua, he is the man who's doing God's will in the day. He's about to head towards Jericho and do exactly what God's told him to do so they can have the promised land. In other words, if you're a Democrat in this room, he's the Democrat in this story. If you're a Republican in this room, he's the Republican in this story, wherever you are. But in Joshua 5, it says that um, an angel of the Lord, perhaps a, you know, a pre-carnate Christ, shows up to Joshua. And Joshua asks him, he says, are you for us? Are you for our enemies? And the response is, neither, he replied, but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. And I just love that scripture and applying it to this situation because I think, is Jesus a Democrat or an independent, a Republican, a Libertarian, a Tea Party guy? None of the above. He comes to us as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So you can all relax by faith. Okay. So this myth that church and politics or church and state, religion and politics don't mix. Let's talk about first how the church propagates this myth. Well, one way that the church propagates this myth right now is the de facto theology that I've already mentioned, which is like, hey, I just think we need to do the church thing. In other words, we have fear that if we get involved in politics, it will uh, compromise our mission uh, of the Great Commission. And I think, particularly in this age, as one of my friends said so well, he said, we, are, we have been, um, how do you say it? He said, we have been shamed into silence by the ghost of Jerry Falwell, okay? Meaning, the whole religious right thing in the 80s, it was kind of extreme. And so, as Christians, you know, again, me feeling so awkward at the lunch table with the other teachers and kind of being vilified just for voting for someone. I didn't even, you know, like, I didn't start the conversation. But I was totally vilified. So, um, the, the deal, um, yeah, I just, you know, we, we've been sometimes shamed into inaction. And that is how the church continues this thing. Say, hey, you know, we don't want to rock any boats, and we certainly don't want to compromise the whole message that John talked about last week, so we can't do both. So we just won't do that, right? That's one way that that happens. The other way that I think, and it's in the same vein, really, but the other way that the church propagates the myth that these things should mix is we have, at times, incorrect, but at least short-sighted interpretations or applications of a couple of scriptures. And one is that one in Luke 20. It also appears in Matthew but it's Luke 20, and we talked about it this summer, but where, you know, the, the Pharisees, they want to bring Jesus right into the, re, the religious political trap. So they ask him about, hey, should we pay taxes? And Jesus' response is, right, says, give to Caesar what is, and give to God what is. And so just the other day, two weeks ago, three weeks ago, I said to someone, I'm going to preach on the election. Ooh, you know, watch out. <clears throat> And, you know, the immediate response is, well, you know, obviously church and state are supposed to be separated because of, you know, the, the um, you know, Jesus' response. And, you know, I just, you know, we went on the conversation. It wasn't my time to, to, to respond. But afterwards, I just thought, but that is, no, that, that, that's, that's a wrong thinking because actually I think God has included this in our, in our Bible because he's called us to be people who are both in the church and in the state, right? We give to Caesar what is Caesar, Caesar's. We are, we're engaged in the state and we're engaged with God. And a similar view I found with the Romans 13 piece, right? That's the place where um, we are asked to submit to the ruling authorities because ruling authorities are from God. And I found that Christians take the whole Romans 13 passage and make submit into, like, not engage, right? When we have a precious thing in this country and that we are allowed to engage. 
You know, we have legislative processes. We have judicial processes where we can respond. And on those religious liberty things, like the things that happen where all of a sudden, um, you know, you're not allowed to be a Christian in the public square anymore. What is happening there is it's not that we are not fighting. Excuse me. It's not that we're fighting and not winning. It's that we're not showing up. Christians aren't showing up in that public square when it comes to the religious freedom things. Because I think of an incorrect, incorrect view of Romans 13. Submit means I just be quiet, you know. So that's how the church propagates the myth that church and state should not mix. Now, how does the state say religion and politics don't mix? How does the state say it? Well, I think the other widespread thing is this misinterpretation or misapplication of the doctrine that we've come to call the separation of church and state. Let's remember the origins. And please um, forgive me if you feel like um, we're going back to your con class and your constitutional law class, constitutional law 101. But um, remember, okay, the First Amendment. Let's put it up there. First Amendment, Bill of Rights, U.S. Constitution. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. Right? Now, this, this idea of separation of church and state, it comes from Jefferson when he was president. There were a group of Baptists in Connecticut who were nervous. And they were nervous because the Connecticut Constitution did not have the equivalent of that First Amendment at the federal level. And they wrote to the president saying, we're nervous. We're afraid that because the state has no restraint like the federal government has on interfering in religion, we're afraid that the state's going to legislate things about our church. And Thomas Jefferson agreed and said, you are, you're right to be afraid because what I take from the First Amendment is, this is Jefferson, he says, I take that a wall of separation, a wall has been erected that separates church and state. In other words, what Jefferson was saying was that the, the state should not interfere in the business of the church, Right? But as you know, and some of you are, um, you know, as you know, the secularists of the day have said, let us just erase everything religious and make sure that religious people aren't able to be religious in the public square. It's so automatic. Again, as a teacher, I remember we had, you guys know the see you at the pole phenomena. You know, there's a Wednesday in September where students will gather at the flagpole of a school and just pray. So I remember, I think I was student teaching um, so I was new, you know, and um, I remember just mentioning something in the classroom. And I can't remember why, you know, and I wasn't being provocative or dangerous. You know, I wasn't like trying to push an edge or anything. But I remember students like right away, separate church and state. Like literally they just said, Mr. Hubacher, separate church and state, blah, blah, you know. And I was like, oh my gosh, like you don't get it. Or, you know, like this is how you've been indoctrinated is, you know, you feel that um, like, Religious people can't be religious in, in, in their daily, daily lives, and it's just been totally twisted. And so the state kind of perpetuates this thing. And um, you know, in the attempt to make everything neutral, we've just said um, religious people can't be themselves in the public square. But honestly, the founders could not have ever envisioned that kind of world. Actually, it's precisely the reason they put the First Amendment in was so that religious people could be themselves in the public square. Amen? Is there anyone out there? Are we? Okay. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> okay. The other way that the state really propagates this myth of church and state shall not mix, and it's actually something almost all of us have grown up in, is this awful, awful law that is totally unconstitutional. And it was made in 1954. It's called the Johnson Amendment. It was an amendment to the tax law. And so churches, just by virtue of the fact that we're churches, are tax exempt. 
But we can, if we want, we can apply to be a 501c3 organization, which means we're exempt from paying federal tax. And that's what we've done. At the harbor, we've said, you know what, life is so much easier when you become a 501c3 organization because then when you're doing, you know, when I go to Staples and buy stuff, I can be tax-free. I don't have to, you know, it's just I have my little form. But what Johnson did, then Senator Johnson, remember, he would become the president after Kennedy was assassinated. But President Johnson, he was really scared of um, some guys. Actually, the um, Gannett is one of them. Gannett, the guy who's the, um, the USA Today publisher, there are a couple of guys that really didn't want Lyndon Johnson to continue in politics. And um, so Johnson passed this amendment, like, with no discussion, no, I think it was just a voice vote, no committee, just kind of got it through um, Congress somehow. And um, the Johnson Amendment, yeah, here it is, right? It's, it's um, the language is that anyone who does not pay federal income tax cannot participate or intervene in, including the publishing or distribution of, or, of statements, any political campaign on behalf of or in opposition to any candidate for public office. Now, you just get to ask yourselves, we just read the First Amendment, and as far as I know, the state coercing the speech in the public was not one of the things that the founders had in mind when this republic got started. Amen? There's about a 1,000 pastors. I'm, I'm not one of them because my message today is actually pretty tame. But there's about a 1,000 uh, pastors who just last Sunday preached very kind of uh, boldly on the election and some issues. And their hope is, and I'm in solidarity with them, that the, and they're actually sending their sermons to the IRS because they want to get nailed by the IRS so they can bring this thing to court so this thing finally can go and get judicial review, right? It doesn't seem like a fair lot to me. I don't know if it does to you. But the IRS never wants to go to court because right now they can keep doing what they're doing, which is just slap us on the hand. You know, if, we, if I say something wrong, like don't vote for this person or vote for that person, they can slap us on the wrist, take away our 51 c 3 status, but we get it back. Like the history of this thing is so weak. You know, the, the last time it actually happened was like in the mid-90s when a church in New York took out a full-page ad against Clinton, and uh, they got the slap on the wrist, and then they got their 51 c 3 back. But the IRS doesn't want to engage in a, in a battle because I think they think they'll lose, right? Please hear my attitude. We pay our taxes. As a family, as a church, we obey. We submit. But submit does not mean not engage. And frankly, this is a law that is bad. And it's created what we call a chilling effect on the church. Because, you, you know, when I said yesterday, I said to someone, hey, I'm preaching on the election. He said, ooh, you know, in all my years, I've only had one person preach on, or maybe two, if you're here, I, yeah, one or two ever preach on this stuff. And I think it's because the, 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 um, they've kind of bullied the pulpit by, uh, by coercing our speech, and it's just not good. Who is, um, who is Paul Revere writing to on the midnight ride of Paul Revere? You remember? If you go to Concord or Lexington, you're going to visit a house called the Hancock, um, Hancock Clark House. And he was writing to Jonas Clark, and Jonas Clark was a pastor. And who were the British afraid of? The pastors, because they would speak... Yeah, maybe some truth from the Bible, maybe. All right? I mean, I just mean, like, it's, it's, it's in our heritage as a country. And um, anyway, so just stuff for you to think about. So that's the, other, that's the way that the state kind of propagates this myth that religion and church should not mix. But don't you want to know what the Bible says? Come on, can we look at that? We need to be people of the scriptures. So let's see what the Bible says. The good news is that the overall message from the Bible is that church and state, they both fit on God's plate. Can we just say that together? Church and state both fit on God's plate. Okay? From Genesis to Revelation. We'll start with Joseph. Did Joseph have a significant impact on the pagan government of Egypt? 
Yes, he did, because God raised him up. To, was, and was it just so that um, he could be religious and smug about it? Or did God have a rescue plan for a whole bunch of people? Come on. God wanted to rescue Egyptians who otherwise would have died. And the whole realm, you know, the whole Middle Eastern world, he wanted to rescue. So he raised Joseph up to have a significant impact on civil government. And we get to Moses. Does Moses have a significant impact on the Pharaoh and Egypt of that day? He absolutely does. He says, let my people go, right? And God does a great thing. Let's look at Daniel. Daniel's an awesome example. Daniel is in exile. He is in Babylon. And, um, and Nebuchadnezzar has a crazy dream. And he asks Daniel to interpret. And uh, Daniel gets a little bit nervous. He's like, oh, this dream's really intense because it's really all about your downfall. Um, sorry. But, you know, he doesn't. Hem and ha, Daniel gets right to the point. He says, this is what it means. This is gonna ha- you know, you're going to go crazy for a while, Nebuchadnezzar. But if you repent, you know, things will work out. And this is what he says. He says, therefore, O king, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing right. Can you imagine saying that to a congressman today? Hey, why don't you renounce your sins? By doing what is right. And your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be then that your prosperity will continue. He was not mincing words. Daniel took the opportunity that God gave him and had a significant impact on the civil government. And it worked. I mean, Nebuchadnezzar, he does have the time. He goes insane. You know, he's acting like a cow. His fingernails go long for like seven years. And then he repents of his hubris, of his pride. And he comes back and he says, oh, the God of Israel is the one we are to worship. Amen. Okay. All the prophets, all the prophets. You notice that the prophets, they don't just address the sins of Israel, but they're able to address the sins of other nations because they recognize that God is the God of all nations. Okay, God is the God of all nations. So all throughout the prophets, they're not just addressing Israel, but they're addressing the other nations around them. Jeremiah, you know, in that verse that we all love to quote, Jeremiah 20 and 11, right? Before I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Well, right before it, in verse 7, it says, Seek the welfare of the city. In other words, Jeremiah is saying, hey, you Israelites, as you're in a pagan land, seek the welfare of the city. And I don't know about you, but seeking the welfare of the whole city, it's not merely just have kids and be good, but have an influence there, I would say. Let's go to the New Testament. John the Baptist. I want to I run through these. John the Baptist. Okay. John the Baptist. Now, he's going to have an influence on civil government, but it's going to cost him his head. Anyone want to go into politics? Okay, there we go. All right, John the Baptist, he is upset with Herod. He's upset with Herod. He's one of the Roman rulers, occupying rulers. But he's upset with them because he's sleeping with his brother's wife. And he says, that's bad. But look at Luke's account. Luke's account mentions it's a little bigger than that. He says, when John rebuked Herod the Tetrarch because of Herodias, his brother's wife, and all the other things he had done, Herod added this to them all. He'd locked John up in prison. In other words, it is not a stretch, or I don't think it's biblically irresponsible for us to say that in John's interaction with Herod, he was addressing all sorts of injustice, all sorts of wickedness, all sorts of, uh, in, the, in Herod's reign, uh, that were incorrect and that were not morally responsible. And I think we're okay to say that. Similarly, Paul does the same thing. Paul, as towards the end of the story as we have it in Acts, uh, he has appealed to Caesar, um, as he is uh, you know, preaching the gospel and gets in trouble, and then he appeals to Caesar. So he's en route to Rome, 
And in prison in Caesarea, he's before a Roman governor named Felix. And it, it, it says this in Acts 24, 25. It says, as Paul discoursed, or the Greek, um, it's better translated the New American because it in- indicates a dialogue. As, as Paul reasoned on righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid. Okay, he, got the, he got the fear of God on him. Stop talking to me about righteousness and how I need to improve. This is too much, right? It says, Felix was afraid and said, that's enough for now. You may leave, right? And again, I just don't, I can't believe, I don't think it's scripturally responsible to say, hey, Paul wasn't just talking about, hey, Felix, let's talk about how you don't love your wife. Let's talk about how you this. But in your ruling and in your reigning, Felix, here are things where loving God would change things for you. And finally, I just, um, it's not on your sheet, but I just want to bring to mind this wonderful tangent that Paul has as he's writing to Timothy. He's telling Timothy, hey, guys, or hey, buddy, friend, mentor, mentee, excuse me. He says, Timothy, now you know, I've been telling you this stuff so you know how to act in the household of God. And he has this wonderful Holy Spirit tangent and how he calls the church. It's First Timothy 3.15. He says, Timothy, if I'm delayed, now you know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God. And he calls it the pillar and the foundation of the truth. Ooh, Paul has a high view of the church. 